Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, Swamp Folk. Hope everyone's doing okay today, and hopefully everyone's feeling well and is ready for another strange mystery. Does anyone else feel like it's been too long since we've had a good old-fashioned alien story on the channel? It took quite a while to find a story that I thought would be great, and it just so happens that right as I put this out, there is a new documentary about this coming out as well, so coincidence is on our side. Here I am yet again, hat in hand, ready to show you something very interesting. CBC News dubbed this as Canada's most documented UFO case. I know aliens are usually lumped in with either science fiction, horror, or government conspiracy theories, but they really are a category unto themselves. I'm not trying to say they are definitely UFOs out there circling the planet or anything, I'm just trying to say that statistically speaking, it's not that crazy to think that there might be other life forms out there, somewhere. Sure, our solar system only has eight planets, or nine if you refuse to let go of Pluto, but we're only one of thousands of solar systems within the Milky Way galaxy. There are an estimated 100 billion planets in our galaxy alone, and based on mapping and simulations, scientists theorize that one in five stars like our sun should have an Earth-like planet in its orbit. That comes to 40 billion total. But don't forget, that's only our galaxy and our understanding of our galaxy. That doesn't include the hundreds of billions of other galaxies out there. So yeah, now I have my own controversial theories on everything. I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that Earth is so special that aliens are here and just here, but you know, maybe they are in contact with us, maybe not. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Is life a simulation? Is the sky actually blue? Is the grass actually green? I don't know. You tell me. Normally, when someone claims to see a UFO, they're treated as a fraud or a lunatic. To an extent, that's also true of today's case. But this one is far from typical. Whether it was a genuine UFO experience, a government experiment, or a straight-up hoax is for you to decide. But first, let me tell you just a little bit about Falcon Lake. It's a beautiful area located in Manitoba's White Shell Provincial Park on the Trans-Canada Highway near the Ontario border. It's a very popular getaway for locals and tourists alike. Park has campgrounds, cottages, picnic areas, all that good stuff. Now, it didn't quite have the same level of amenities in the 1960s that it does now, but it was still a hotspot for nature lovers. Some people even staked claims in the area to prospect for precious metals. That's what brought Stephen McCallick to Falcon Lake on May 20th, 1967. But before we get into the nitty gritty of this story, I have to take a moment to thank today's sponsor that allows me to be able to do these types of videos for you. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, 
pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You skip trips to the grocery store, and you can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. With HelloFresh, you're getting seasonal ingredients picked at peak ripeness for quality you can taste. Ingredients travel from the farm to your home in less than seven days, so you know they're fresh. HelloFresh knows you're busy. That's why they're taking care of the meal planning and prepping, freeing up time in your schedule. With pre-portioned ingredients, foolproof recipes, and convenient doorstep delivery, HelloFresh makes it easy to put dinner on the table. I've been using HelloFresh for many years now. They've been a great sponsor of the show. They've helped me with my workout routine, making sure I always have meal prep ready to go. I really do enjoy it and back it. So, what are you waiting for? Join me and many others in the swamp today. Go to HelloFresh.com swamped60 and use code SWAMPED60 for 60% off plus free shipping. Once again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Swamped60 and use code Swamped60 for 60% off plus free shipping. After World War II, Stephen McCallick and his wife moved from Poland to Canada, where Stephen found work as an industrial mechanic, and he also fancied himself as an amateur geologist. He regularly traveled the Falcon Lake in search of quartz and silver, knowing the quartz veins in that area often yielded gold and nickel. It was while he inspected one of these veins that he suddenly heard a flock of agitated geese. When he looked up, he saw two objects with reddish glows hovering roughly 150 feet away. His quoted description of the crafts were, Cigarette-shaped things with humps in the middle. At first, he believed them to be experimental American aircraft, but then one of the objects landed on a nearby rocky platform and shifted into a disc shape, while the other hovered nearby for several minutes before flying away. The landed craft remained in front of Stephen for roughly 30 minutes, and during that period, he was able to draw a sketch. Its dimensions were approximately 34 feet long by 15 feet tall and its color alternated between gray and red. The surface resembled hot stainless steel and emanated a warm golden glow that smelled of sulfur. There were also sounds of a whirring motor and the hissing noise of air being expelled. Once finished with the sketch, Stephen dared to venture closer in search of an insignia, but he saw none. He did note that the smooth, metallic surface lacked any seams, but after a few moments of standing there, a door lined with bright light slowly opened. He heard two distinct but muffled voices coming from the inside, and he believed they sounded human, one voice being notably higher than the other. Assuming that the Americans were experiencing some sort of mechanical malfunction, McCallick called, Come on out, Yankee boys and offered his assistance. This instantly silenced the other voices, and when there was no response, Stephen merely tried speaking in Polish, then Russian, and finally German. Man, you gotta love this guy. He thought a secret government aircraft landed right in front of him. So what does he do? First he sketches it, and then he decides, oh, let's see if we can actually help these fellas out. That's brave, or maybe stupid. It depends on how you look at it. When you think it belongs to the US or Canada, that's iffy. But I see how some might feel at ease, but this guy? He was even willing to bet on the Russians in the 1960s. 
I want whatever he was on, that's all I'm saying. Anyway, he didn't let a lack of response get him down. No, sir. He put on his welding gloves and goggles and walked inside. Then he saw light beams and panels flashing in different colors. The craft itself seemed empty, but when he tried to walk away, three panels slid shut to trap him inside. When he touched one, it was hot enough to melt the fingertips of his gloves. The craft then turned counterclockwise to reveal a new panel. This one had a grid of holes that blasted McCallick in the chest with heated gas and threw him backwards out of the craft. His clothes were on fire, and he tore the burning items from his body as the strange craft flew away. The experience left him nauseous and he vomited multiple times as he fled the area. Some sources say he also saw pink dots in his vision. This all left him too disoriented to find his way, so knowing the road was to the southeast, he then tried using his compass, but the needle went haywire. Thankfully, he did eventually locate the road, but he wasn't home free quite yet. Constable G.A. Soltke, a police officer, happened to notice the frazzled man and believed him to be drunk, but there was no smell of alcohol. So, the officer claimed he wanted to help Stephen get to Falcon Beach for medical treatment, but said his offer was declined. Yet, Stephen said the officer was dismissive and refused to help. To be fair, I can see how one might be dismissive of someone claiming to have been inside of a UFO, but this was still a disturbed man who was clearly alone and in need of help. They were essentially in the middle of nowhere. McCallick did eventually make his way back to the motel where he spoke to the owner about seeing a doctor, but the only doctor was unavailable at the time. That sounds like some Andy Griffith stuff right there, but I guess it is the 1960s, so we'll let it slide this time. With no other options available, Stephen returned to his room where he called his wife. He said there he had had an accident and that he was returning home on a Greyhound the following day. His son later picked him up from the bus station and drove him directly to Misericordia Health Center where he was admitted to the emergency room. The burns on his chest and stomach matched the pattern he described as being on the exhaust panel and though he was soon released from the hospital, he continued to suffer from nausea, diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, weight loss, and, well, some sources even say he also emitted a sulfuric smell. I like to think most of us wouldn't have gone into the mystery aircraft in the first place, but I guess if you had, what the hell would you do next? Upon his release, McCallick sold his story to the Winnipeg Tribune, which published his experience under the heading, I was burned by a UFO. And later that same year, he published his own manuscript with Oz Nova Publications titled, My Encounter with the UFO. Sadly, Stephen's ongoing symptoms eventually forced him to seek treatment at the Mayo Clinic. There, they determined he was sound of mind and concluded his physical condition was consistent with radiation poisoning, but his test results came back negative. Altogether, he lost 13 pounds, and his lymphocyte count dropped to almost lethal levels. He was once quoted as saying that the burns returned in the same pattern every three months until the day he died in 1999. Never once did he doubt his encounter was something otherworldly, and he passed that belief on to his youngest son. Stan was only 10 years old at the time, 
but he eventually appeared in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries to discuss the events from his perspective. Now let's rewind just enough to discuss how authorities handled Stephen's claims. As we know, his supposed incident happened on May 20th, 1967, and every article tells the story just a little bit differently. It's normal to have minor discrepancies in the finer details, but this one is worse than usual. Thankfully, we can rely on the lovely six-page police report that someone was kind enough to upload. It's dated June 26th, 1967, and it was written by Sergeant Davis. It's not written in chronological order, but we're going to discuss it in chronological order to the best of our abilities because we are not savages. On May 26th, Constable Schmals advised that he spoke to the motel's cafe and beverage manager. According to this unnamed witness, McCallick stayed in room 17 on May 19th and between the hours of 8 and 9.30pm he drank three bottles of beer in the motel's beverage room. I guess that's what they called motel bars back in the 1960s. Stephen was set to have left the motel at approximately 9.30 and he returned an hour later sometime around 11, at which point he drank two more beers. The manager said he was not too terribly drunk or maybe not even drunk at all when he left, nor did he purchase alcohol to take back to his room. In Stephen's interview, he claimed to have left the motel at roughly 6am on the morning of May 20th and his timeline was corroborated by the maid who cleaned his empty room at 7.30 that same morning. Mrs. Bweck, the motel owner, told police she saw Stephen between 3 and 4 p.m. on the 21st. This is when he approached her stating that he was in need of a doctor. Since there was apparently no doctor available, she referred him to the police. McCallick left and later returned asking to make a collect call to Winnipeg, at which he was directed to a phone booth outside. Nearly everyone he spoke to that day said he behaved as if he were intoxicated, but not a single one could say they smelled booze on him. On May 27th, Davis questioned Stephen about his alcohol consumption and he denied having anything to drink on the night in question. There was also a discrepancy in the cafe manager's timeline. He claimed to have seen McCallick at 8pm, but that simply wasn't possible. Stephen traveled the Falcon Lake by bus and he didn't even begin his two-hour journey until 7.15. At the earliest, he would have arrived at around 9.15 to 9.30 that night. In Stephen's version of events, he was in his room until after 11pm when he went to the beverage room for a burger and coffee. Later, Davis arranged for the manager to see McCallick in person and he confirmed it was the same man he served beer to on May 19th. The beverage room was busy that night, so the manager admitted he could have been mistaken about the time, but he was adamant that Stephen drank the beer. McCallick was later confronted with the manager's accusation, but he continued to insist that he didn't drink. Davis states that he and squadron leader Bisky were in daily contact with Stephen during the period of May 26th to May 30th. Each day they hoped that he would feel well enough to come up and search for the supposed landing site. On May 30th, the two men drove to Stephen's home in Winnipeg where he drew them a map of the landing site. Bisky 
was then able to coordinate with the Canadian Army to obtain the use of a Hillier helicopter for the following morning. They argued this to be the best course of action due to the possibility of vegetation growth concealing the site. This risk grew more likely with each passing day and investigators were desperate to win the race against Mother Nature. On the morning of May 31st, David and Constable Anderson drove to Falcon Lake where they met with Biscay and other Canadian Air Force personnel. At noon, another Army helicopter joined the search, but even with Stephen's map, the search efforts were pretty much fruitless. His instructions were to look for a flat piece of rock 300 feet long and 100 feet wide, which should have been doable. Rocks that large are very rare at Falcon Lake, but once again the search was called off as night drew near. Ultimately, it was decided all efforts to locate the supposed landing site should be futile without Stephen there to point them in the right direction. Davis and Anderson drove the two hours back to Winnipeg that very evening, and this time Stephen felt well enough to join them. The three men left for Falcon Lake early on the morning of June 1st. In an earlier interview, McCallick recalled walking a little over 3,000 paces to reach the highway after he saw the craft. This was estimated to mean that he couldn't have traveled more than two and a half to three miles before reaching the road. So, the air search covered about a four to five mile area. Shortly after their arrival, Stephen was taken up in a helicopter, but he wasn't able to recognize any landmarks from the air. Everything looked too different. That afternoon, they changed tactics. Davis and Anderson escorted Stephen to the area where his shopping bags and saw were previously located, and they managed to cover between three and four miles before nightfall. Yet, they still found nothing of significance. This was actually the first and only mention I saw of the gloves and saw, so now that you know what I know, we can move on to the next section. Davis felt that McCallick was wandering around aimlessly without any real sense of where he was going. When questioned about this, he claimed he had been following quartz veins in the rock facings while prospecting and wasn't paying attention to his surroundings. Despite these initial difficulties, Stephen insisted he would find the site, and he appeared disgusted with himself for not having already found it. The search came to an end in the early evening, and McCallick was home by 10 that night. Davis and Anderson returned to Falcon Lake that following morning and resumed their search with assistance from Air Force personnel. This time they expanded the radius even further, but they still came up empty-handed. The effort was officially called off that afternoon on June 2nd at 2pm. On Saturday, June 3rd, the head of the United States UFO Project at the University of Colorado, Dr. Roy Craig, came to conduct his own investigation of the possible UFO sighting. He spent the first day interviewing Stephen, and Sunday was spent exploring Falcon Lake. The doctor was initially impressed with McCallick during the interview, but when they actually got to the lake, he began having doubts. As he did when searching with the police, Stephen was stumbling around without any real sense of as to where he was going. On June 6th, Dr. Craig contacted Davis with a request for additional information he might have, and the men did meet, but it didn't seem Craig learned anything new with his troubles. On June 8th, Squadron Leader Biskey and other Air Force personnel flew to Falcon Lake to examine a microwave tower after it was speculated that McCallick might have climbed it for an eagle-eye view of the terrain. If he did, 
Some thought it was possible he might have been burned by the electricity at the top, but Bisky concluded that this would have been highly unlikely. The tower was approximately one mile north and east of Falcon Motel, and in that same vicinity he found a spot that looked very much like the sketch Stephen gave the police. They thoroughly searched the area but found no evidence whatsoever. They informed McCallick of this location, but at the time of the report, Stephen had not been able to look at the site himself. I saw no further mention of this area, so it's likely he either didn't go or he couldn't find it very familiar. With this, the Air Force considered the matter closed pending the discovery of new evidence. The only thing they had that could technically be counted as evidence besides the shopping bags and saw was Stephen's burned welding gloves. He welcomed the police to perform any test they'd like, and it was in turn passed along to Brisky. That about does it for the actual investigation portion of the report, though. But the last page and a half are arguably the most interesting of all. I want to read this paragraph to you. I cleaned up some of the repetitive parts to save time, but I encourage you all to read it for yourselves at a later date. In light of the increasing prevalence of UFO sightings and because there's the distinct possibility that our personnel will be the first ones approached by the observer, I have obtained a copy of the Air Force's instructions on how to deal with UFO reports. It covers what information should be obtained from the observer and how the report should be channeled. It's not surprising to hear that there was an increase in sightings after Stephen's story gained international notoriety. Such is the way, but hearing it in such an official capacity adds a healthy dollop of realness to it all, don't you think? The instructions were brief enough to include in the report, which means I can read them to you right now. Now this is the official two-step process according to Canadian Air Force bases and other forces at the time, the first section says reports of UFOs are frequently received at Canadian Force bases from various sources. Canadian Forces Headquarters is responsible for processing any action required regarding the report. The report should be transmitted to Headquarters in accordance with Section 2. Section 2 says unclassified priority messages should be addressed to Can Force HED and the first words in the text should be for CFOC UFO report. All reports should include as much of the following information as possible. A. Date and time of sighting. B. Sky conditions. C. Observer's identity. D. Observer's location. E. Identification of any other witnesses. F. Description of the object. G. Duration of the sighting. And H any other relevant information. This form was published by the Royal Canadian Air Force on October 7th, 1966. And that, my friends, is how the Canadians handled UFO sightings in the 60s. The Central Forces Headquarters would assess these reports to determine whether or not further investigation was required, and if it was, they would pass the information along to the closest Air Force unit to make the necessary inquiries. Now, there are a few inconsistencies that I wanted to mention before we conclude the story of Stephen McCallick. You'll notice the police report stated the supposed landing site was never found, 
but most articles are actually saying otherwise. Some say a perfect circle of burned vegetation was found when Stephen returned to Falcon Lake with the police, while others say he found it with a friend while exploring on their own weeks after the fact. Some say the circle was 15 feet in diameter, while others say it was actually 30 feet wide. As far as I can tell, this is just how urban legends begin, but who knows. Maybe there was a crop circle, but the government decided to cover it up. That's not the only supposed evidence found that was never mentioned in the official report. Some articles also mentioned pieces of melted radioactive metal were found along with high levels of radioactive elements in the soil in Stephen's clothing, but this was ultimately concluded to be the result of radium veins that happened to be nearby. Or is that what they want us to think? Most articles did agree that initial theories concluded our man was merely hallucinating due to alcohol consumption, but most of the official investigations ended with inconclusive results. No one could definitively say or explain how McCallick's physical wounds and symptoms occurred. Skeptics tend to conclude Stephen's injuries did indeed result from some sort of drunken stupor, but I failed to find any explanations as to how. And I, for the life of me, can't seem to come up with my own theories of how he could have done this. As to why he might do such a thing, um, I don't really know. It would not only conceal the true cause of his injuries, assuming that's something he'd want to hide, he could possibly dissuade competing prospectors from staking their own claims on veins in the area. Of course, this would have the opposite effect as hordes of investigators, reporters, and members of the public flocked to the scene. There were a few attempts to explain Stephen's health conditions with an allergic reaction, but I can't get behind that one honestly. The science seems a bit, um, iffy. I find it difficult to believe allergies are the answer. Even if the initial wounds were so easily explained, I've never heard of an allergic reaction resulting in years of serious health concerns Stephen ultimately experienced. Have you? Now, I did try to check around for some other similar sightings that were supposedly occurring at the time, but I only really found two other ones. Back then, it was fairly common for locals to still visit the garbage dump just to watch bears rummage for food, apparently. One night, a server from the hotel went there with her boyfriend, and on the drive home, a silver object appeared in the sky. It followed them for some time, but her boyfriend was able to speed up, and they made it safely into town. The server was living in the hotel's staff accommodations, and this experience rattled her so badly that she refused to leave her room for the following day. Sometime later, the hotel's owner's son, Steve Busick, received a strange call from a friend's brother. Bob and Bill said they could hear an electronic sound coming from the woods near the home of Penguin Resort. Steve walked down by the road to check it out, and when he came to the final hill, he heard it clear as day, a steady beeping sound. It almost sounded like it had some sort of pulsating influence to it, like it was coming from the trees. The three young men ventured into the woods with their flashlights, but the source seemed to be coming from everywhere all at once. The next day, Steve spoke with a local trapper who was somewhat of an expert on the unusual, when Steve told him about the electronic beeping, he laughed and said it was probably only a saw-wet owl. All I can say is that it must be one strange owl sound if it was some sort of electronic pulsating sound. Or could this have been related to the Stephen McCallick experience? I don't know, and we'll probably never know for sure. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, ultimately, Swamp Folk, what do you guys think? Is there a theory you agree with, or do you have your own? Have any of you ever visited Falcon Lake yourself? I would love to hear about any personal experiences you may have, and be sure to let me know if you want to learn more about UFO sightings. It's interesting to note that Falcon Lake isn't terribly far from Washington's border, which does happen to be one of the highest number of UFO sightings in our country. Coincidence? Or something more? I don't know, we'll discuss that in another video. It was really fun to cover one of these, I haven't done one of these in a couple of years. I think the last one I did was a case where a bunch of Illinois police officers were allegedly chasing down a UFO, and then the one I did before that was the strange and infamous case of the War Minster thing. You can find both of those on my channel. I'm definitely looking to cover more stuff like this, so definitely put your suggestions down below. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to slap that like button for me as it really helps the channel grow. If you're new, be sure to subscribe and be sure to turn on those notifications as I upload brand new videos almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural and you're not going to want to miss them. If you have a personal experience that you would like to share on the podcast in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or on reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I would love to share your story with everyone else here in the swamp. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you made it all the way to the end, be sure to comment down below the code word of the day, which is backflipping UFO. I love to see how many people get up to the end, and it's also fun to see the funny comments you all make. I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.